Before I talk about um, Exodus and before I talk about the Israelites, I want to talk about Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> now, I'm sure that's what you all came here to hear, hear about. You just wanted to hear a little bit about Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road is a film that came out, I don't know, I guess it must be like five years ago, something like that. Yeah, eight years ago. I was close. Um, came came eight, out eight years ago. Uh, and it's, it's notable, in my opinion, for two things, Mad Max Fury Road. So the first is, it's an incredibly loud film. Um, so it was, it was described um, by one film critic as a film in which everything is trying to be louder than everything else. Um, and that is a fair summary of it. It's just, it's, it's incredibly loud. I believe Jane went to see some, like, artsy performance in a cinema one day, and they had... Gilman Sullivan, there you go, properly artsy, um, in a cinema one day, and they had Mad Max Fury Road playing next to it, and she just got drowned out by Mad Max Fury Road over her Gilman Sullivan, which probably wasn't the experience you were looking for. So that's the first thing to know about Mad Max Fury Road. The second thing to know about it, which is perhaps the thing that always fascinates me about it, is it has the most B-movie plot you have ever, you've ever come across. Let me tell you the story of uh, Mad Max Fury Road. In Mad Max Fury Road, you have these group of people who are enslaved by this guy called Immortan Joe, and, uh, and they're, in, they're enslaved, and they make this escape in this like, giant armoured truck. So they, they, they break out, and they're in this giant armoured truck, and they're trying to get away from their captors, from these people in slavery. And this is the storyline of the film, no joke, right? They drive down a road for, for hours and hours and days and days, being attacked by these various different tribes, by these, uh, these kind of friends of Immortan Joe, just being attacked by all and sundry all the way down. So the, story, the first half of the film, maybe two-thirds of the film, is them driving down this road, being attacked. And they get to a point at the end of the road where they realise there's nothing good ahead of them. They're not actually driving anywhere. There's nowhere for them to get to. There's, nowhere, there's no promised land for them to get to. So what do they do? They turn around and they drive back down the road being attacked by the same people again. That's the storyline of the film. It is the most B-movie plot ever. Like a, a plot, like a film entirely uncomplicated by anything coming like, like a plot. It's you drive down a road, getting attacked, and then you drive back down the road, getting attacked. It's actually brilliant, um, in, in my opinion. But then I quite like B-movie plots, so I, I'm all over that. Um, I wanted to start there because... We're in Exodus, uh, and Exodus is the story of another escape from slavery. There are strong similarities. It's a group of people who have escaped from slavery under this great empire, the Egyptian Empire, the, Egy the Egyptian Empire, the superpowers of their times. Uh, and they, they too are on this journey. They're, they're on this journey to try and get from the people they've escaped from to their new home. A new home where they can be safe and secure, where they can be provided for, where they can be free. That's what they're looking for. And just like Fury Road, it's a journey through a desert. And if you're going on a long journey through a desert, there are no shortage of challenges along the way. There's, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a couple of those challenges. The two obvious ones, thirst and hunger. Like if you're going through a desert, one of the questions you've got to ask is, where are we going to get our water from, and where are we going to get our food from? So that's, that's kind of some of the challenges. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about kind of what did those challenges do to the people of Israel? How did they deal with it? But the reality is that the, the challenges do not end there. The challenges on this journey are not just hunger and thirst, but there's actually going to be some more. Let me point your eyes down to Exodus 17. We're going to start reading at verse 8. 
I'm just going to read these eight verses of this story about what happens to the Israelites on this journey. So, it starts like this. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will, be, I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. I, I hope you see in that story that we're, we're back in Fury Road's territory. In this journey through the desert to freedom from slavery, not only do they have to deal with hunger and thirst, they also have to deal with hostile people attacking them on their journey. Here, the Israelites are attacked by this group of people called the Amalekites. We're given no information about why they attack them, but the Israelites find themselves trying to make this journey, struggling with hunger and thirst, and now being attacked by another people. And so they pull together an army led by Joshua and they go out together to fight against these enemies who are attacking them. Now, before we get into thinking about what do we do with this story, what's this got to do with me, how do we think about it, I just want to take a minute to talk in more general terms about how we go about reading and learning from Old Testament stories like this. Like, what, what, do, what do we do when we read an Old Testament story like this? Because it's easy to read it and think, what on earth am I supposed to do with this random story about a group of people thousands of years ago being attacked by another random group of people? I, I, mean, I mean, I now know that if I ever get attacked by a random tribe, I should get someone to go up on a hill and raise their arms. But as that seems unlikely to happen, then I'm not really sure how it helps me. And so I, I just want to spend a, a couple of minutes just to say, what do we do with that? Because I think thinking like that misses the point of how Old Testament stories work. I want to give you three things, three keys that will help you when reading Old Testament stories. Here, here's the first. Old Testament stories are descriptive, not prescriptive. Let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean is they describe what happened rather than telling us what we should do. That, that's what that phrase means, descriptive, not prescriptive. It means they describe something that happened in history. They don't necessarily tell us how we should or should not behave. Often, they, they have good examples. Sometimes they have bad examples. But often, they don't give us any commentary to let us know which is which. They just tell us the story. This is what happened. And you've got to make that judgment of, is this a good example or a bad example by, well, what happens as a result of it? There's no one telling you this was a great thing for them to do or this was a bad thing to do. 
So, so, many of the, so much of the trouble we get into when reading Old Testament stories is we assume that everything that happened in the Old Testament was exactly what should have happened. But, but that's not how it works. It just describes things that happened in history. So this means that the point of this, the point of this story is to describe, is not to describe how we should defeat enemies or how armies should fight, but rather to tell us about an event in history where the Israelites were attacked by the Amalekites. That's the first thing. So, so we shouldn't read Old Testament stories and think, this is telling me how to live my life. They describe an event. They're not, they're not rules of this is therefore how I should live. Here's the second thing key to reading Old Testament stories. Old Testament stories are generally physical stories that help us understand spiritual realities. That's just how the Old Testament works. So here we're looking at a physical journey from slavery in Egypt to a promised land. And the point of that is to help us now understand our spiritual journey from a rescue out of slavery to sin to a new home in the new creation with Jesus. That's, that's the point. It's a physical reality, something that happened to people on, the, on this planet physically that's meant to help us understand the spiritual journey we're on. We were looking last week about how God provided bread, this manna from heaven for the people of Israel. That's a physical story about the provision of bread that is sp- supposed to help us understand the spiritual bread which God gives us in the person of Jesus to give us life and to satisfy us. So generally, when you're reading Old Testament stories, you need to think, what is physically going on here and what spiritual reality does this point to? And then the third key to reading the Old Testament. So if the first one is that they describe things, they don't tell us what should or shouldn't happen necessarily. The second is that they're physical stories that point to spiritual realities. The third is that they always point forward to Jesus in some way. As a general rule, you can summarize the Bible in this way. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus and the New Testament looks back to him. That's how the Bible works. Jesus sits there in the middle and all of the Old Testament prepares for him coming and all the New Testament looks back on what he's accomplished. That's how the Bible works. So when you're reading these stories in the Old Testament, you're supposed to be thinking, what does this tell me? How does this point forward to Jesus? And we'll get to that uh, this afternoon. So we read this. And what we should be thinking is, what is the spiritual reality that this is describing? And I've already told you what I think it is. It's describing what life is like on the journey from rescue to promised land. That is a journey. If you are a Christian here today, if you are somebody who knows Jesus and follows him, that is a journey that you are on. Christ Jesus has come. He has rescued you from slavery to sin at the cross. You have been forgiven. But you're not yet at the promised land. You're not, you haven't yet gone to be with him in heaven. And so you are on a journey from slavery to promised land. If you're not a Christian here today, if you don't know Jesus, if you're still weighing up what you think about him, if you haven't decided whether you're going to follow him or not, that is the journey that we at Grace Church are inviting you into. That journey where you are rescued from your slavery to sin and you are forgiven and you are put on this journey to go to be with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. So what we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to look at this story And we're going to seek to understand this. What does this story tell us about what that journey is going to look like? How does this journey, how does this story help us understand what our journey is going to look like from being rescued by Jesus to going to be with him? How how does this help us? So here's, here's, that's what we're going to do. Let's give it a go. Here's the first thing I think we learned from this section. On our journey, there will be normal hardships 
which come from living in a fallen world, but there will also be enemies who attack us. See, over the past few weeks, we've seen a couple of things that have threatened to derail the Israelites on this journey. Hunger and thirst. And hunger and thirst are significant challenges on the journey. They tested the resolve of the Israelites. They tested their faith. Did they really believe that God could provide? They, they tested their willingness to trust God. When God said, this is what I want you to do, and they couldn't see how it was going to work out, were they going to do it? They threatened to completely derail the Israelites on this journey. They led to, those challenges of hunger and thirst, led to complaining and grumbling and blaming and distrusting God and disobeying God. Now, they are challenges on the journey. Hunger and thirst, they were challenges on the journey, but they are not attacks. These were the normal challenges which come from living in a fallen world. If we live in a fallen world, we will face hunger and thirst, we will get stuck in traffic, things will break, we will age and get sick, people will, close to us will die. And those things can be challenging to our faith. In those situations, we can be tempted to abandon God, to give up trying to follow him, to not bother carrying on with our journey, to reject the rescue that Jesus won for us. They are all true. They are challenges. They can derail our faith, but they are not attacks. There is a danger that we see all of our life as the story of people and powers attacking us, which can lead to paranoia, to a victim mentality, to, or to being over, overly combative. Everything's a fight. Everyone's out to get to me and I just need to fight my corner. So that is a danger, but there is a danger the other way. The danger the other way is that we forget that alongside those normal challenges, there are also enemies who will attack us. Both of these things are true. Because on the Israelites' journey, yes, they had to navigate hunger and thirst, but they also had to deal with enemies like the Amalekites attacking them on their way. There's the normal challenges, living in a fallen world, trying to go on this journey, and then there's the attacks of enemies. One of the things that we were reminded of a number of times during Keswick, um, during the week I was there, was that as Christians, we are in a battle. There are enemies who will attack us, and like the Amalekites, these enemies are bent on our destruction. They want to prevent us from enjoying the freedom we now have. They don't want us to enter our new home. And ultimately, they want to destroy us, just like the Amalekites wanted to destroy the Israelites. And our, our enemies are not the Amalekites. There's no physical army camped outside your house looking to destroy you. They're, they're not an army like that. We're told in the New Testament that, that they are spiritual forces. And in fact, Christians throughout history have identified three great enemies on the Christian journey. Three great enemies who will attack us. And I have found those three categories so helpful. There was a time where I'd hear people talk about this and I'd just think, oh, that's just old-fashioned language. But Christians throughout history have talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I often come back to those three and just think how helpful that is as a way of understanding the enemies who are going to attack us on our journey. I just want to spend a couple of minutes just talking about what I think is meant by those. So, so the world, if one of our enemies is the world, we, we need to understand what that means. That doesn't mean everything in the world, because the world is a good creation made by a good God. So, so not everything in the world is an enemy, nor is everyone in the world. 
If we believe that, then we have a persecution complex where everyone's out to get us. Now, now by the world, what they meant was that since the beginning of time, human beings have said to God, we don't want you, we want to rule this world ourselves. We want the world you've made, we want the lives that you've given us, we want all this stuff, but we don't want you. And so that is a world in rebellion against God, a world that is an enemy to God and therefore an enemy to God's people. That's what they mean by that phrase, the world. And so that means that the world is to some degree hostile to God and to his people. If you are trying to follow Jesus, you will be at enmity with the world to some degree. Let me just give you some examples of what that might look like. People around you may not want you to follow Jesus. They may want to derail you on your journey. They often want you to be just like them. Just live the same way I do. Do the same things I do. Don't get sucked into this Christian thing. They want you to ignore God, be hostile to him, or or even better, just casually sideline him. Yeah, God's fine, but we don't need to take him too seriously. The world will tell you not to bother living for Jesus, that you'd be better off living for money or comfort or sex or family or magic or whatever. The world will bombard you with messaging telling you that you're a fool to believe in Jesus and you'd be better off without him. It's a war and one of our enemies is the world. That the second enemy that Christians have talked about throughout history is, is the flesh. And that is an enemy that's even closer to us than the world. If the world is all around us, the flesh is inside of us. One of our great, the great enemies we face is ourselves. You probably know this to be true. I probably don't need to convince you of this. One of our greatest enemies is our own sinful desires, our own broken minds, which wage war against us. How many of the great battles we face on our journey are against ourselves? We are lazy. And so we start skipping meeting with God's people. We don't bother reading the Bible, praying to him. And so our journey becomes derailed. We are angry. And instead of obeying God, we blow our top with our family. We're anxious. And rather than taking it to God, we begin to doubt him and question him and grumble against him. So many of the battles we face are against the flesh. They're against ourselves. And so on this journey from Jesus' rescue to the promised land, we're being attacked by the world saying, don't bother with God, you don't need him. We're being attacked by the flesh, ourselves, our sinful desires, the things that we want that are are against God. And we're being uh, attacked by the devil. There's one more enemy, God's great enemy who opposes him and his people at every stage, who tempts them to doubt God's goodness, to think they're better off without him. In our journey from having been rescued and forgiven by Jesus to going to be with him, we will face God's great enemy seeking to drive a wedge between us and God at every opportunity he can find. These are the great enemies who attack us. We don't get attacked by Amalekites on our journey to the promised land. We get attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I just want to say, I don't think it's particularly useful to try and identify, oh, who's attacking me at the moment? Is this the devil or is this the world or is this the flesh? I don't think that's a useful uh, uh, um, kind of thing to go through because most of the time what we experience is this unholy trinity working together. Let me try to illustrate. What are the two most common things 
that derail people from their Christian lives? What are the two most common reasons why people give up on Christianity, give up on following Jesus, and decide to go their own way? I don't know what they are, but I'm going to tell you what I think they are. Okay? And this is, this is what I think they are. I, I think number one is an affair. I think that's the number one thing that causes people to give up on their faith. You see it all the time in churches. You see it with church leaders. You see it with people in the church. And what does it look like? Well, it goes like this. Someone is married, but they decide to be unfaithful to their spouse and pursue a relationship with someone else. They sacrifice their relationship with Jesus for a sexual experience or a romantic relationship with someone else. And what leads to that? What, what causes that to happen in people's lives? Well, I think it looks a bit like this. The world is at work telling us that joy and life is found in sexual experiences and romantic relationships. Telling us that God wants you to be happy and that he wouldn't keep us from something that we want. So the world is at work. The flesh is also at work. We become ruled by our sexual desires or by our need for status or acceptance or validation of some sort. So... The world's at work, the flesh is at work, and then the devil, seeing an opportunity to drive a wedge between us and Jesus, encourages us to disobey Jesus, and then when we have, he tells us, oh, well, you've blown it now. There's no turning back, there's no forgiveness for you now. All three at work, seeking to prevent us from ever making it to the promised land. If that's the first, here, here I think is, is the second uh, and it's this, stop, stopping going to church. And it's the second most common thing that derails people in their faith. I have no evidence for any of this. I might be entirely wrong, but this is my theory. They, what happens? People stop meeting with other Christians. They stop looking at God's word with them. And over time, this, act, this leads them actually giving up on Jesus altogether. They don't think that's what's happening at the start. At the start, they think a whole load of other things. And why do they think that? Well, because the world is at work telling you you'll have a better time with your feet up at home than you will meeting with God's people. After all, you deserve a rest. You've been really busy. And anyway, look at all these other things you could do with your time. You could watch a football match or go shopping or go to the pub or play a computer game or read a book. So the world is at work. The flesh is at work telling us we can't really be bothered. It's too much hassle that we have other things that we'd prefer to do. And then the devil, seeing an opportunity to separate you from Jesus and his family, tells you it's not really worth doing anyway. You won't get anything out of it. You can worship and follow God just fine by yourself, and you don't really fit at church anyway. You're too bad or too good or too clever or too stupid. What are the two most common things that derail people? I don't know if they are them, but I think they're two that you see all around you. And what is at work there? Three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the Christian life. The normal challenges of life with enemies attacking us on the way, just the same as the Israelites. So don't be fooled. You have been rescued, but you are in a battle. On your journey to be with Jesus in the home he has prepared for you, you will face battles. And so what do we, what do, we do? What do you do when you face battles? I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? You fight. That's what you do. We're called to fight. That's what the Israelites do here. Joshua raises an army, and his army fights against their enemies. If you want to be with Jesus, you have to fight some battles on the way. And in the New Testament, we read what the weapons we need to fight these spiritual battles are. We need to be armed with the word of God. 
with the assurance of the gospel, with confidence in our salvation, with the righteousness of God, with our faith. So that when we're faced with the temptation of a fair, we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. When the world tells us it will be fine, we take God's word and say, no, it won't be. When our flesh says that we want it and it'll feel good, we take the truths of the gospel and say that true life and fulfillment is found in Jesus, not in just doing what we feel like. When the devil tells us we've blown it and there's no way back, we take the truth of our salvation and declare that forgiveness is available. We have the weapons, but we do need to use them. My, my observation is this, and you can... You know, it's one of those, if the cat fits, wear it, really. Like, you can work out whether this is true of you or not. My observation is that what we often want and expect in our Christian journey is a journey with no enemies. We expect it to be plain sailing. We think we've signed up for a cruise. We think that no Amalekites will ever turn up. We want a Christianity which does not require us to fight any battles but there is no such thing. It doesn't exist. If you want to complete the journey, if you want to get to the ultimate goal of your salvation, your new home with Christ, then there will be enemies, there will be attacks, and you will need to fight against them. If you want to avoid having affairs, you're going to have to fight for it. If you want to keep meeting with God's people, you're going to have to fight for it. If you want to avoid being turned off your journey by all the distractions of money and possessions and experience, you're going to have to fight for it. If you're going to find the peace of the gospel and not allow worry to strangle your faith, you're going to have to fight for it. There will be battles on the journey and we will have to fight them. All of this talk of battles got me, got me thinking about some of my favourite battles. Um, uh, unsurprisingly, we're going to Lord of the Rings. It's been a few months since I've been there. It's time to return to the second greatest book ever written. The biggest battle in Lord of the Rings is the Battle of Pelennor Fields. If you don't know the story, it's this great epic battle at the end of the final book. And what you have is you have all the armies of darkness kind of coming together. So you've got the orcs and the goblins and the Urukai and the evil men and the Nazgul, all these forces of darkness coming together to fight against the, the forces of light, the elves and the dwarves and the men and the Rohirrim. And so you have this grand uh, kind of gathering of the forces to come and, and fight. If you've ever seen the film, uh, Return of the King. It's, it's epic in its scale. There's just thousands and thousands and thousands of people all gathered for this great battle. Who is going to win? Gondor stands as the last kind of hope for the world, the last kind of stronghold for the forces of light against this unbelievable horde that seemingly uh, is just going to completely railroad them. This is the great battle, the great scene. It's one of the great spectacles of that film. But it's not actually the heart of the story, is it? Like the heart of the story is that there's actually another battle going on and this battle is a lot less grand. It involves two hobbits, Sam and Frodo, and a ring and trying to get up a, a hill. Like that's, that's, that's the real story of the book. The real story of the book is Frodo and Sam who have this ring that holds all the power of darkness in it. And if they can destroy it, darkness is defeated. All its power is gone. Like they may, they may still have to fight, but in, inevitably they will lose. But if it's not 
de- destroyed, then the force of darkness inevitably win at some point. The real battle is going on with these two hobbits trying to take the ring and destroy it. That's where the actions are. Not with these thousands of people fighting this great battle. That's where victory is going to be won or lost. The battle is fought on Pelennor Fields, but the battle is actually won or lost on a hill. That's the situation we have here in this account. You'll have noticed it. Joshua and his army fight the battle, but Moses on a hill with his arms raised wins the fight. That's the thing that determines who wins. It's not the skill of Joshua. It's not the strength of the armies. The battle's won on the hill with Moses. If his, if his arms are up, they're winning. When they go down, they're losing. That's it. And the point of that story is obvious. It's God trying to show his people that whilst they do the fighting, it is God alone who will bring the victory or not. Yes, they fight, but they can't win or lose. Only God can do that. And it was clear to anyone watching where the victory was won. The victory was only won because God was with them. The victory was not won by swords and shields, by the army at all, but by God who gave them the victory. So, so it is with us. I've, I've told you that the Christian journey is going to involve battles. From Jesus' rescue to promised land, there will be enemies who attack us and we're going to have to fight. That is true. We fight the battles. We war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the victory is actually won by a man on a hill with his arms outstretched. But this time, the arms are not held up by friends, but by nails. This time, the arms do not merely grow tired, but life itself departs from them. And here on that hill, the battle is actually won. We we fight, but the victory is won by the true and better Moses, by Jesus who defeated sin and Satan on the cross, and through that victory empowers us to win our battles against those enemies which seek to derail us. So we fight, And we cling on to Jesus. And as we do, our victory is secured. No enemy will ever be able to prevent us from reaching the land that God has prepared for us. A land with no more hunger, no more thirst, no more enemies. This is what this story points us forward to. And so as you fight against those enemies of your life, then lift your eyes to Jesus and see him with his arms outstretched and know that God is fighting for you and that those outstretched arms mean that your victory is secured. I I want us a grace church. I want us to be a church that fights. If we're not, we we get derailed. We We don't get anywhere. I want us to be a church that that fights to keep hold of Jesus. But I want us to know that in the fight, Jesus has already defeated the enemy. And so the victory will be ours. That's, that truth is what enables us to walk the path God has prepared for us as we enjoy our rescue and await our new home with him. Now I can, I can talk uh, and I can tell you all this stuff and you can go about your life and, and forget it all. But you need to know and believe these truths if you're going to keep on that journey that God has marked for you. 
the journey from your rescue to your new home with Jesus. And I want you to, to know those. And it's quite hard to go from not knowing that or not thinking that to, to completely changing the way you think in the amount of time we've had here. But one of the ways that we can help train ourselves to, to know these truths, to really believe them, is in song. Often at the end of our time together, we sing. And that's not just like the equivalent of a full stop at the end of a church service. Like you need to do something, so I put a song in and then we're done. Like the reason we do that is because we, we want these truths, we want to meditate on them. We want them not just to be head knowledge truths that we know, we want them to be things we believe. And as we sing these truths, as we meditate on them, then they become more and more the way we understand the world we live in. We're, we're going we're gonna to finish, we're going to sing uh, three songs. And, and all of these songs talk about this journey. They talk about the battles that we have. They talk about the victory that is there, there in Christ. I just want to encourage you, it's, it's, three songs gives us a bit of time. It gives us a bit of time just to meditate on these truths. To think about what it means to be on this journey where we're attacked, but to hold on to Jesus who's winning the victory for us. So let me encourage you, think, think about these words, sing them, sing them to each other to encourage each other, sing them to your own heart to encourage yourself, and, and hopefully we'll be equipped to fight the battles we'll face on this journey. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing.